Topology. My name is Dylan. My name is Kevin. Today we have a uh, very special guest on a very special show. Regular listeners uh, who have essentially stumbled upon this by happenstance will know that we are uh, normally Fridays 11 to noon, but it is currently uh, 4.48 this Friday, but we're going we're gonna to do a show for y'all. Uh, we said last week that the last show of this semester and uh, we made ourselves into liars because we have a very special guest for today, a dear friend of the show, and just a dear friend in general, uh, Delaney Reese, if you'll say hi. Hello. Happy oh. to be here. Well, thank you for coming on. And, and to, to give a little context, I think uh, Delaney is uh, one of the members of our research project that we've spoken so, so much about. And uh, just in regards to speaking of anthropology, you know, we thought, wow. So it's been a whole semester. We want to thank everyone for listening and tuning in. But now, the final show, we bring the gang back together. Yeah. Right? How's that sound? No, I love everything about it. <laughs> but then, uh, Delaney, you are uh, a UAF alumni now, right? Yes. I graduated last spring, and I'm back visiting right now for Christmas uh, while I'm back from grad school. And so uh, where is grad school for you now? I love that you're asking these questions because you already know the answers. Yes, but uh, the listeners don't, and yes, so I must ask exactly. for them. It's like a back and forth. Uh, I'm, I'm in the anthropology department at the University of Western Washington in Bellingham. Uh, there are five other students in our department right now, and I'm studying biocultural anthropology in terms of medical anthropology and women's reproductive health. Biocultural anthropology. Interesting. Got to ask, can you define it for us? Yes. I know you love to ask about defining culture and defining parts of anthropology. Uh, I define biocultural as kind of building a bridge between biological anthropology and cultural anthropology. The two are like often very separate, like in departments and in classes and all of that. But it's I'm of the opinion that uh, our biological experience that we have as human beings is inseparable from the cultural one. The only reason we experience culture is because of the biological bodies we inhabit. And so to understand cultural experience, we also have to understand our biological experiences. Absolutely. And yeah, the kind of feedback loop right between the cultural and the biological, and you know, which goes first, right? The chicken or the egg is kind of always been a big question in anthropology and a great way to start some uh, heated debates. So Yes, and I, I've actually stumbled across that recently. I'm starting my literature review for my thesis, and a big part of my thesis right now is I'm talking about the evolutionary development of the human pelvis and what that means in terms of birth and things like that because that's my, my thesis topic. So that opens up that can of worms, that like which came first, the bipedalism or the brain, which came first, uh, longer gestation or birth sooner uh, evolutionary advantages in the brain or in the body or did culture happen and that's why we walk upright it's this constant argument and the bio the bioanthropologists think they're right and the cultural anthropologists think they're right and I stand between them and I just want to hold hands and sing kumbaya mm -hmm. you, you're trying to uh, synthesize right two, two opposing ideas you have a thesis and thesis, and you're trying to create the synthesis. Yes. Well, there's actually there's already a book that I've done some reading on. I didn't bring it with me. It stayed at home. I had to pick between 
12 books to bring back to read over break. Um, but the biocultural mm-hmm. synthesis, and it, it focuses on that division between biology and culture and how a lot of the time, especially in medical anthropology, they're the same thing. So, I mean, okay, so you just mentioned 12 books, and I'm mm-hmm. like, whoa, hold on a second. Anthropologists, we read a lot. Oh, yeah. But 12 books. It's a lot. I, I have to ask. So, you know, you were an undergrad here at UAF, mm-hmm. and we have a lot of listeners who are potential anthropologists um, in training, and eventually will go on to grad school, some mm-hmm. uh, in the studio, you know, yeah. uh, Dylan. <laughs> um, and Kevin. And Kevin, eventually, eventually, yes. a few years out. Um, but if, could you, you, would you, what would you say is the difference between an undergrad and a grad program? anthropology because there, there are differences there are right? huge differences uh grad programs in general have completely different expectations um this quarter my school's on a quarter system instead of semesters i had uh only three classes uh, and that's a full load and it is a full load uh, the classes are all heavy on reading and not heavy on grading one of my professors doesn't, he, we haven't turned anything into him. He has no idea what we've been reading, what we've been doing. It's all in the honor system. He trusts us to get our work done, and we do because we're there to get our work done. We're there to work on our thesis. And so grades aren't necessarily, you're not, you're not doing busy work to get your grades done. You're doing work work to get your final project done. Uh, and that's the great thing about all these books I don't have regular assignments, so I'm just doing my reading, my background information, and all of the books on top of that are ones that I want to read. So it's books that pertain directly to what I'm interested in. So it might be 12, but I've already read seven, and it was a good time because it's what I wanted to be doing. So then there's more of a reliance right, on the fact that you want to be there and have a reason for being there, and a very specific reason, and you're already know that reason even if maybe not to the fullest extent like yeah. but you know you're like you're doing your lit review right so you already have like a, a something you're working on and a goal in mind and so there there's the freedom then to just pursue that yes as you see fit and it is different grad programs have different expectations mm-hmm. and that's i mean historical particularism <laughs> hashtag franz boas uh it's all different depending on what that program is known for my program it's two years you're expected to complete it in two years lots of people don't but they try to push you through as fast as they can and get you all the information so you're not dawdling around um but when it comes to like knowing what you're going to do if you're going into grad school and you know I want to be an anthropologist or I want to be whatever it is that I'm going to grad school for and you know that's what you want and that's what's going to make you happy then that's why you should make the decision. If you already know what you want to research, boom, you're like, you're ahead of half the people that are going to be going. That's awesome. Love that. You don't need to, but you do need to know that it's something you want. And that's something that I have seen in my first quarter. I've seen people struggling with it because they'll go and then they'll realize that maybe this isn't what they want. And it's a lot of work to do for something that you don't really love. Yeah, you have to, yeah, you have to have the motivation for yourself, right? Because it's, mm-hmm. yeah, there's just, you can't just do it because it's like, well, I guess this is just a thing I do. My, it's not going to. If you're going to grad school because you want to get a master's to make more money, that's the wrong reason to go. If you're worried about making more money, like not to shoot on you or anything, 
but you should have got like an engineering degree. Yeah, also don't <laughs> go into anthropology if you want to be like making money hand over fist. You know, like, to quote Dr. Josh Fisher, there's a lot of money in anthropology. But there's not as much compared to some of the other fields There's either. a lot of money in if anthropology. You, if you want to get rich you and you want a master's to get you rich, I would go more with computer science right now. But I, but I have to say, oh, well, this is this is actually an interesting discussion because I think I'm curious to hear how we each found anthropology mm-hmm. because, right, yeah, computer scientists, computer science majors, yeah, you got Google, you got Facebook, you got these, you know, world-renowned multi-billion dollar companies, but then you have anthropologists who are teaching the next generation, doing humble work. I'm not saying computer scientists, by the way, are bad. I'm just saying... You know, they may be more focused on algorithms that will benefit, um, you know, how you do your web searches, um, your privacy, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It, that yeah, you know, that is something that we all use these days. I, I think we were talking about this briefly yesterday, and I don't want to digress too much. But, like, computer scientists take advantage of the rectangles that we look at every day. Anthropologists take advantage of these conversations that we have right now, right? So... Well, I don't know. Anyways, let me let's go back to the question about how how did you guys find out about anthropology? Uh, my story is awesome. Not to like one up you guys or anything, but mine's great. But I have a couple things about what you were talking about. Uh, one of the biggest companies, like the company that hires the most anthropologists, is Microsoft. Per capita, it's Microsoft because they want anthropologists to tell us about the little boxes that we stare at. So the computer scientists can make the boxes, but anthropologists can tell us how we use the boxes and what the boxes mean for our lives. Uh, One of the professors that I've been working with, her name is Dr. Kathleen Saunders at at Western Washington, and she is a cyborg anthropologist. So she does research on human-robot interactions. So she's looking at the way that we are becoming robots in terms of prosthetics, in terms of the technology we use, and how we interact with different robots, like how we interact with Siri on our phones or Alexa, and what that relationship looks like. It's awesome. There's all these different opportunities when it comes to anthropology, because anthropology is everything. To uh, maybe end up uh, cursing myself on this gambit here, one of the grad programs I've been looking at actually is in a um, university in Great Britain that offers a master's in digital anthropology. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that, that kind of route is certainly a viable one. And, like, there's the, the classic story that we all heard, right, when we took research methods of Xerox back in the 70s, right? Yes. Trying to figure out how people are using their copiers and printers, and they can't do it. So what they do? They turn to anthropologists. So there, there is the lucrative consulting mm-hmm. aspect to that. I do not deny that yes. at all. But I, mean, I think anthropologists themselves are very interdisciplinary or very open. The Renaissance individual of this era, or I don't know, I'm going on, but, you know, like... We're fancy. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, we are able to do so many things because we have to. We, we can mm-hmm. be in the lab. We can also be in the field. Um, this is, these are things we talked about with archaeology, an example, yep. right? Um, but then... You know, I like the Microsoft example. I mean, you know, tentatively, maybe I'll say like when I go online, you know, I, you know, I have these existential crises every once in a while. And I'm like, what, you know, my, my folks ask Kevin with an anthropo- anthropology degree, what jobs are out there? And I'm like, mm-hmm. all right, let me give you an answer. Yeah. A straightforward answer. You go online and search anthropology careers. And the jobs that show up are predominantly tech industry jobs mm-hmm. where you're looking at human interaction, uh, maybe AI sort of, you know, right. And and trying to understand 
not the sociology or the psychology of humans, but the ways we behave and how we can make it more accessible. So, you know, the, the, those are things that I'm, you know, I think anthropologists have plenty to do. Oh, and, yeah. um, you know, it's, <laughs> hey, you know, we, you know, we can be a professor at a university and conduct our own research, but we can also work in either field. So yeah. to any hopefuls out there, you, you have an opportunity. Anthropology is the mm-hmm. field of the future. I mean, we spoke to Dr. S.K. Willislev, um, mm-hmm. a, a professor on one of our previous episodes. And, I mean, he studies genomes and uh, he also is an anthropologist but also was like a hunter in Siberia and he's everything so mm-hmm. anthropology is everything uh, the the medical field right now I mean in terms of medical anthropology but in terms of just the medical field in general like having a BS in anthropology is a huge plus so a the bachelor's of science, science right? yeah, so you get your bachelor's of science in anthropology and you go into the medical field, you have that background in the human aspect of what medicine truly means. And everybody that applies for medical school has that biology BS. Like, sure, they have the biology bachelor's of science. That's great, but that doesn't make you stand out. Having that anthropology, understanding what humanity is, is something that medicine is kind of pushing for now. So Medicine wants anthropologists. Tech wants anthropologists. Everyone does. The legal system, the U.S. government, everyone. It's a huge, huge piece. And just for any job that you're looking for, being able to say that you understand people, it's a it's a people degree. I have a I have a degree in people. The uh, State Department, the Park Service, both have mm-hmm. been l- traditionally very large hires of anthropologists yes. for. For cultural resource management in the park services case or for um, diplomatic postings or working, mm-hmm. you know, abroad for anthropology, even uh, either with a bachelor's or with a master's. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't it's not exclusive to people with graduate degrees either. Yep. For those, so. I think the best example of that, uh, Ruth Benedict, she in the 1940s during World War Two was working with the U.S. government in Japan um, and her work in Japan and her work on Japanese culture as a whole is the reason why in the post-World War II era, the United States did not depose or replace the emperor. It's the reason why Japan still has the emperor. I may or may not have Ruth Benedict tattooed on my leg. It's very exciting for me. But <laughs> that work with the U.S. State Department has shaped the political climate, the, the world that we live in now. And her book, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, displays that. It's awesome. You mentioned a uh, people person earlier, and I, I don't know. I, I feel like maybe maybe as we pursue, or as we go through college, our our personalities will become more open to new cultures and experiences. But to, to those out there who are like fearing that they aren't socially enough active, can they be anthropologists still? I, I mean, that's sorry, that's not something I'm oh, curious yeah. about, right? Okay. Because, you know, back to Ruth Benedict. (laughs) Sorry. You know, that's (laughs) she's the best example. Ruth Benedict hated field work, hated it with a burning, fiery passion. She was deaf in one ear. Um, She was a student of Franz Boas. And for Boas, field work was a huge part of it. But she was deaf and she hated talking to people because she couldn't hear them. So she did her required field work, and the rest of the work that she did was all textual analysis. So she didn't necessarily work directly with people, but that doesn't mean that she didn't have an impact on people. So the chrysanthemum and the sword wasn't necessarily interviews that she conducted. 
they were transcribed interviews from uh, either Japanese prisoners of war or um, uh, American citizens that were currently being held in Japanese internment camps um, or observations from books she'd read and things she'd seen. Uh, But she didn't actually interview anyone. But her anthropology, her work that she did was still so good. It still had so much value that even though she might not be working directly with people, she still got people. She still knew what was going on. So to everyone out there, check out Ruth Benedict and uh, was uh, the chrysanthemum, the chrysanthemum and the sword. And the sword definitely a, a must read. Yes, could Not- be part of your winter holiday season shopping spree for Ruth Benedict mm-hmm. pieces. <laughs> As sponsored by no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no sponsorships on this show. No, no, no sponsorships. It's none of those work, Kevin. <laughs> we 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 do appreciate you uh, for coming in, but we have to ask. It's Friday, mm-hmm. finals are ending for everyone. Do you have like any like good songs to just give everyone a nice Friday evening? Yes. So this is my favorite one. Uh, because it's happy and it's just, it's like summertime. It is Magic in the Hamptons by Social House. Sounds good. All righty. This is Social House, Magic in the Hamptons. This is Speaking of Anthropology. My name is Kevin. My name is Dylan. And uh, in, this, in the studio today, uh, we have a special guest, Delaney. Hello again. Uh, Delaney just played two fantastic songs to to ease us out of the finals mood into winter break and into this uh, winter wonderland of Fairbanks. Welcome back to Fairbanks, Delaney yes. from Washington. Uh, hope you're enjoying. Hope your flight was all right and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but why these songs? Uh, well, I, I like Magic in the Hamptons. That was the first one we played uh, because it's so happy. It just feels like a good summertime. And Cherry Wine by Hosier is a recent favorite of mine. I got to see him in concert this past October, and we got there super early before the show. Uh, we're some of the first people in. It was all open seating, so we run up there. We're like three people back from the stage, and it was so nice because he was a person. It was so weird to go to a concert and have them like right there. Like He looked like a person. He wasn't some far-off little dot that I was watching saying it was like a person that was singing. It was amazing. And that was one of the songs that he performed. And uh, it wasn't a favorite of mine beforehand. But afterwards, I was like, oh, this is magical. This is sweet. It's beautiful. And it's sung by a person. And I now I feel like I know that person in like a weird, cheesy way. And the song was? Cherry Wine. Cherry Wine by Hosier. 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 Sorry. Uh, you know, this is something we've, we've talked about uh, multiple times on the show. And we had conversations with Sherry, um, we've had conversations with Dick um, about music and the music evoking feelings and experiences and emotions. And mm-hmm. um, the infamous story that I told was I'm walking to class here on campus uh, and I'm like, you know, I heard a song, I was listening to a song by accident the other day. I listened freshman year. I'm like, whoa, oh, I'm, am I a freshman? Am I a sophomore? Am I a junior? I don't know. But, you know, just I think I felt it right there, that that same emotion. You know, I, I, you know, I understood. I, I resonated with you. I almost picked another one because it tastes like something to me because it was a specific song that I was listening to over and over again. 
Um, it is not radio appropriate, but I it was one that I'd listened to over and over again during a time when I had like a very specific drink that I was drinking. So it tastes like that sweet cherry tea that I was drinking. So every time I hear it, that's what I think of without fail. A sensory feeling beyond, mm-hmm. right? And I, I know Ken, I, I, uh, Kendrick, a, a previous uh, member on our show or guest on our show, um, I love the way he uh, described uh, specifically the reverberation of sounds and how it goes out and comes back and we're constantly sharing it. Mm-hmm. So what are the questions we didn't get to <laughs> answer? Because mm-hmm. we, I, I think that's just how we are when we talk, oh, you know, yeah. the three of us. Um, the gang's back together. I got to mention that again. Um, but specifically, how did you come upon anthropology? And, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. So I came into my undergrad already declared as an anthropologist. I declared when I was in high school, I think on April the 4th. Weird that I remember that. But they'd come in to help us sign up for classes. And I signed up and I declared myself as an anthropology major. Because that summer before, I took a trip with my grandma to Italy. And we had toured from Venice to Tuscany, down to Rome and Sorrento. And while we were in Sorrento, we went to Pompeii and Herculaneum. Herculano. That's how they said it. It's hilarious. Uh, we went to Herculaneum. Herculaneum is a site that is much like Pompeii. It was destroyed in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. But instead of being covered by ash, it was covered by a hot mud flow. And so in that process, all of the wood was preserved. Um, there was better uh, body preservation. So the individuals that were there when the eruption happened, uh, we have better record of them. And we were going through the city touring and it was, uh, Herculaneum is a richer city than Pompeii. Pompeii is more like a capital and Herculaneum is like a beachside villa. And so there's more money there. And so we're touring around the city and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And they're telling us all these things. And, uh, when the site was discovered, all of the individuals were found on the water by the coast. And so our tour guide is telling us anthropologists, hypothesized that when the earthquake happened prior to the eruption everyone fled the city and went down to the water where there were no buildings that could crush them and then they heard the mud flow coming so it's this big rumbling in the distance and they ran back under the cover of the um, the water the dock so they run back under the cover of the dock and that's where all of their bodies were found thousands of years later hundreds of years later and um on those bodies and within those remains we were able to find uh, house keys and the doors were preserved and we could see that the doors were locked so when the earthquake happened and people were running to get out of the city to save their lives they had enough sense or they had sense to lock their doors and so then anthropologists concluded from that that there was enough crime in the city enough risk of theft that even in the event of an earthquake people were driven to lock their front doors before they left and I'm asking all these questions and I was so excited about it I was like this is amazing how did they come up with this who are these anthropologists what are you talking about and um, they asked me if I was an anthropology major because they didn't realize how young I was and I didn't know what it was and I went home and I googled it and that April I declared as an anthropology major and I would never go back wow 
I, I, I have to ask an anecdotal question. Mm-hmm. When you searched anthropology, did anthropology, anthropology with the G-I-E at the end, the store, come up? This was before the store was super popular, oh. so no. Well done. There we go. To those out there, if you search anthropology online with a Y, not an I-E at the mm-hmm. end after your G, because I-E is a store, a uh, brand, not that. Also, how the Germans would call anthropology, but... Anthropology. It's neither here nor there. Well, it's, it's there, right? It's in Germany. It's there, not here. Yeah. Uh, that is quite a uh, dramatic story. Yeah. Right? A story that you can rope in, like, actual, uh, you know, sites of volcanic disasters, mm-hmm. especially historical ones. That's pretty, pretty good. Yeah. yeah. How did you guys find anthropology? Oh, you want me to go first, Kevin, huh? Yeah, okay, okay. It's a it's a lot more boring story, and I don't have an exact uh, date. I don't even have an exact year, to be perfectly honest. I just, from, like, the time I was a very small wee lad, you know, a little tiny person, <laughs> uh, I wanted to be an archaeologist, right? Oh, yeah. And so um, I started volunteering at the museum, actually, uh, at UAF, the UA Museum of the North, when I was about 12 in the archaeology lab and then i took my first anthro course here at about 14 and so that's when i discovered uh, cultural anthropology and so i kind of just ran with that once i started university mm-hmm. so. yeah. i mean as a wee lad that's that's a story i mean you've no, come for, yeah. we've come full circle and um I m- might i add that dylan is younger than i am in age <laughs> and yet he's graduating next year oh yeah smart alec smart alec well we don't need to bit uh, what about you kevin how'd you yeah uh, no, no i mean um anthropology i actually originally when i was a wee lad uh in high school i wanted to uh to actually study environmental science um i was really interested in saving the world and interested in being mother nature's protector uh you know at some points i re- recall wanting to be a lawyer and be an environmental lawyer then a sports lawyer at some point um, and then it transitioned into what I believe was environmental activism, mm-hmm. which I did quite a bit um, back home in California. But it just, I don't know, it just wasn't tangible enough for me because then you realize there's a place called Alaska and where people, you know, yes, they care about the environment, they care about everything around them, but it's, it's, it's kind of, to me, it sounded almost as if environmental science uh, was an everyday sort of thing rather than a study at a college where you go to. So um, that's where I ended up here in Alaska. But for me, anthropology really came about back in 2015. I don't have the exact date, but uh, not, not like you, Delaney. Um, but it was... Uh, I'm only on judging a little bit about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was back uh, in 2015. I got a chance to go on a Greenland expedition Um Students on Ice, an organization, fantastic. Uh, and, uh, you know, there on board this expedition, um, I met, you know, people from all across the Arctic, but also um, specifically an anthropologist in training. Now, of course, there were also scientists on board. There were, you know, indigenous folk. Um, there were environmental scientists. Mm-hmm. So I spoke to everyone and, you know, um, went home with a bunch of ideas. Uh, I think after... That was that was definitely where I said I'm not going to be a sports lawyer, 
so that was the nice. cutting point. But um, from there on out, like it that. was an interest in anthropology um, and specifically what it is. Um, I recall in high school, I'd speak to my uh, my advisors, um, you know, and I've advisors in high school who should, uh, you know, not to say they weren't aware, but they just didn't understand what anthropology was. Mm -hmm. And they weren't able to say, Kevin, you should study this so that you can pursue this, mm -hmm. um, you know. And so I studied it, you know, I came here, I'm like, you know what, let's let's apply for that degree. Um, actually, when I got to UAF, I was slotted for anthropology and a minor in wildlife management. Okay. Don't know how that happened. I loved wildlife at that point. Um, but anyways, now I'm in anthropology and political science double major. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, you know, still going, right? Which, so. now that I'm in graduate school, I have my... My minor was in political science. So we've taken classes together. Yeah. Um, it is so important to be an anthropologist and to also be conscientious of the political environment because they are so interwoven and so hard to navigate that I'm sitting, I'm sitting in my classes. We're trying to work through all of these things. And politics and political science is impossible to remove from anthropology and I have, I have classmates that have never read some of these political scientists before. We're reading Foucault. Mm -hmm. And I had a class with um, Dr. Hirsch. Yep, Dr. Yep. Alexander Hirsch. Mm -hmm. yep. And we read Foucault, and I came in, and I knew what I was talking about, and it was awesome. And that political science has helped me immensely. And one of the people in my department who's getting his master's right now is doing environmental anthropology. And so he's working on fisheries in Washington. So he's going to be looking at how to preserve and um, bolster fish populations in a cultural context because there's um, all these arguments between farmers and politicians and um, indigenous peoples about who has the rights to these fish. And there's the legal issues. There's that political issue. Uh, so anthropology can really be anything. And like, I hope you become an environmental anthropologist. Like, save the world, Kevin. Yeah, I, I <laughs> you know, that's that's something I, I still want to save the world. But I think uh, at this rate, saving the world includes a comma and another sentence after that. Mm -hmm. Yet to be yeah. defined. Um, but I think that's the pursuit of it. And I think, to, to, to summarize, I think we all came, came to, well, we realized anthropology through our experiences in life and then realizing, wow, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, there's people out there that study us, yeah. you know, and study everything around us and the way we, we are. Right? And we're the coolest thing out there, frankly. Honestly, right? Yeah. <laughs> people are weird and it's great. Yeah, I mean, we are like, you know, the most complex thing we've ever encountered in the whole universe. Right? Mm -hmm. like, so far. Well. That's why I said you know, encountered in there. Right? Yeah. But, you know. I'm waiting. I went to space camp. I went to space mm -hmm. camp three times. I was too bad at math to be a, an astronaut. So I'm an anthropologist, and I'm waiting. Well. We make contact with some outside yeah, space uh -huh. population. I call dibs. This is me putting out into the world. I call dibs. I'm the there, anthropologist in charge. Well, see, so here's the thing, though, is, is that there already are, is, like, the burgeoning field rate of space anthropology, and especially more so, I think, in space archaeology. But nonetheless, like, yeah. the, um, the 
uh, or the U.S. space program, right? NASA, they have a currently a project, um, Artemis, to return to the moon by 2024, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if over the next um, Mars by 2032, 15 to 20 years, we see a um, continued expansion uh, of human stations in the space, mm-hmm. I think that the um, selectivity of the pools necessary to be an astronaut uh, will be reduced slightly, and I mm-hmm. think there will be more opportunities, you know once we have a lunar base or a Mars base or both for anthropologists to then come along and say, Hey, this is some, a place humans have never lived before. And, uh, we, uh, we need to study this Mm -hmm. because this is important. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, yeah, especially for folks like us, but you know, also for folks who are going to be coming up in anthropology five or 10 years after us, there's a real, real lucrative opportunity there. If that's what you want to do, if you want to do anthropology on Mars, that could actually very well, very easily be a thing and it's very exciting yeah we are the mars generation yeah which i think is so cool (laughs) there's uh anthropologists are actually currently studying the possibility of people going to mars going on these martian missions um on the big island of hawaii there's the the research facility where astronauts are going for six months at a time uh, to kind of see what it would be like to be on mars and in that Kind of closed off environment where they only have those six people and that's something that anthropologists are looking at they're looking at the video footage the um, the conversations that these people are having the social interactions and seeing how feasible is it for six people who are hundreds of thousands of millions of miles away from anyone else with a 60 minute communication time with Houston how does that translate socially? How do they feel about it? What's going, could it work? Is it even possible for it to work? If we sent people up to Mars, would they really get along? Would it work the way we want it to? We don't know. Anthropologists do. Well, the thing is, is anthropologists are trying to figure it out, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the exciting bit. No one knows, but we, we, we're the field that uh, is maybe best position to answer some of those big questions. Mm-hmm. So. Which is so funny to me because people say all the time, oh, well, we'll never know. I'm like, we could. Mm-hmm. I know a guy. Like, I know a couple guys. Mm-hmm. We're good at this stuff because there are so many big questions. And that's something anthropology has taught me for sure, that there are big questions that I can never know the answer to, but that I can start chiseling away at. And I might never know why something happens or what something is in terms of like, cultural structure in some far-off land. But I can start asking the right questions to figure it out, and then other people can build off of that, and eventually we'll have all the answers. I think that's the other important thing for folks to keep in mind, too, is especially both in a field like anthropology, but in the sciences in general, right? Mm-hmm. It is a very much a collaborative effort, right? And, I mean you know you're never going to work well with everyone all the time in the entire field like that's not possible Mm -hmm. but it yes it is it is a collaborative effort and you know i don't think that um folks should be expecting to single-handedly solve every impossible riddle you know just Mm -hmm. cut all the gordian knots of the field themselves Mm -hmm. it's not how it works and typically people who claim that they have done that are not doing good science yeah so the Tracker on that one is iffy at best. Yeah. It, that's 
there are some where I think you could find the answers, like chemistry. There's a lot of answers that we have found that we thought we never would. Uh, geology, lots of answers we've, we've found now. We have a really good understanding of rocks, which is great. And I love that. Geologists and anthropologists, we're good buds. Um, but I think that anthropology itself is more comparable to something like physics or astrophysics or astronomy, things like that, that there are questions that in our lifetime, in maybe even the history of humanity, that we will never get the chance to answer. And it's this weird, kind of uncomfortable, I will never know this, and that's okay, kind of optimistic nihilism about it, which I love because of who I am as a person. And I know that it can make some people uncomfortable, but I really think that as, at a certain point, the more you learn about anthropology, the more comfortable you become in not knowing things, and the more comfortable you become in saying, I don't know, can you tell me? And that's like a huge step especially today, because lots of people are like, no, I know, when they don't. And anthropology gives you the toolkit to say, no, I don't know, tell me more. So ig ignorance is not bliss. No. <laughs> <laughs> to know is to, to be. Uh, <laughs> I, f I, feel, I feel like I, I just need to spout out these motivational points now, because it's like... Yeah. Our anthropology has brought me, which is so weird and so cheesy, but I wouldn't be happy if I wasn't doing anthropology. Um, and it has brought me an immense amount of peace in my social life, in my like mental health, in my everything. Just to understand people better and to understand the world a little bit better and to have that deep breath of, I don't know and that's okay better all of those things has like chilled me out as a person and made me feel good. Anthropology is a feel good study. I, and I, I really think that it deserves more focus in schools, especially in like the social climate that there is now. It, it really helps when talking to people from different backgrounds, a different, different way of understanding things because you go into it knowing that at the baseline of everything they're still the same as you and no one is that different wow I, uh, it's a feel good moment I, uh, that was a feel good moment right there I think in terms of anthropology yeah um, very very uplifting message for us I think uh, that would be a good time to send us a new uh, second music a feel good break. song oh yeah. a feel good song there yes. go. yeah. this is the last one you guys let me pick out and this one's one of the new ones by harry styles adore you that he just released which i'm very excited about because i listened to one direction all those many moons ago this is harry styles adore you welcome back this is speaking of anthropology my name is delaney my name is kevin my name is dylan we uh thank you for coming in again and that song Harry Styles. Harry Styles. One Direction. One Direction. The Right Direction. A Feel Good the Song. The Only Direction. The Only Direction. A Feel Good Song. Yes. Yes. Speak upon it. So he, today, the whole album has come out. It's the um, Harry Styles' first solo album since the band split all those years ago. Uh, Adore You was the third single that's released. 
Uh, and it's just so sweet and happy and wholesome. And that's one of my favorite things about it. I, there, um, the other members of the band have come out and released music, but not none of it is nearly as happy as the music that Harry Styles is making right now. And uh, that's the kind of music that I like to listen to. A feel good song for yeah. Friday. That's, there's no sun up right now. There's no sun up, but so no. this song makes it feel like there's a little bit of sunshine. There you go. There you go. A little sunshine here at KSUA 91.5 FM Fairbanks. I have a uh, quick PSA for the listeners. So this is for the uh, Nanak Traditions Board. So if you're interested in helping shape Nanak traditions, such as Starvation Gulch, uh, Winterfest, Springfest, and more, you can attend the Nanak Traditions Board meetings. They're held every Thursday at 1 p.m. in uh, Wood Center Conference 101B in the uh, Center for Student Engagement. This is a great way to meet friends and be part of campus life and grow your resume. So if you're interested in that, check that out. So Delaney, we, we've talked um, about anthropology um, and descri- we've, we've discussed it, but um, you know, as, as a grad student, you have, you know, y- your focus is on research, right? Yes. And getting the opportunity to um, work with a faculty and conduct something of your interest. Mm-hmm. But we also did research here. At yes. UAF back in the day, and that's how we actually really got to know each other and become a team. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit about maybe that uh, your experience here mm-hmm. at UAF um, with the URSA project that we did, yes. and then maybe now, you know, now you're a grad student, and mm-hmm. you know, has that prepared you? Maybe right? Yeah. So it has been really good. I I am working with a lot of people who they're coming into their projects as the first project they've ever done. They're not familiar with writing grants or um, the IRB, the Institutional Review Board process. Uh, And the Institutional Review Board is different at Washington. And um, it's actually more complicated than it was here at UAF. But I have the background from having done it on our project before that's really helping me get mine done. Uh, So I'm studying um, women's reproductive health care, specifically with pregnant women in rural Alaska who are Um, traveling to deliver their babies and in the process of that so because I'm working with women in rural Alaska who are typically native Alaskan women and uh, because they're pregnant they're considered a protected population and so there are special more stringent um, ethical responsibilities on my part uh, in order to make sure that I'm not violating anyone's right to persons things like that And so I've gotten a head start on it. And having done a project before has helped me get the start on that. Uh, My program is awesome. Not all programs do this. But next quarter, we're spending the whole quarter writing grants and IRB proposals and all of the things that we need in order to conduct research. So the whole next quarter is all about research methods. It's all about labeling what research methods we are going to be using. Um, It looks for me like I'm going to be conducting interviews, which is something that I got to practice with you guys and transcribing interviews. So I'll be interviewing people and then typing up the interviews that we conduct. And that was the other thing with our URSA project. um, The grant was able to pay for um, that research equipment. So I have equipment going into it. I know how to do it going into it. And that project in terms of what I learned uh, for skills was 10 times more valuable to me personally than any conclusions we were able to draw 
from the research project. And if you're planning on going into a field where you think you might be conducting research, if you're going to be doing any kind of surveying, any, um, any type of research like that in anthropology or in any field, having that background and the fact that UAF is so supportive of undergraduate research projects is an opportunity you need to jump on. That's tremendous, right? Yes. And I, we, we've talked about it multiple and times. Kevin, you're the yeah. champion now, of research projects. Working on it. Working yeah. On it. yeah. I, I think it's just research in general. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, you're, care, you're, you're considering something that you care about in the community, mm-hmm. which is our school campus community, but then also something that you can practice um, and, you know, put into to practice, which mm-hmm. you are right now, right? So, yeah. Yeah. This is something that, that popped in my mind, and I think the three of us can discuss a starter guide or starter kit to becoming an anthropologist. Ooh. And I say, I already, I already got woo. So how about we'll start with you Delaney and then we'll Mm -hmm. go to Dylan. But what are some, what, what, what do I need? What do you need to be an anthropologist? What can I carry in my bag? Ooh. Or what do I, other than knowledge? I mean, knowledge is something we have. Let's talk about tangible material items. Tangible material. Ooh. Okay. I'm a bad anthropologist in this regard. Anthropologists like to recommend that you carry a pencil and paper because pencil does not fade. It's going to be as dark as it is when you write it down as it is years later. If you get it wet, it's not going to run. It's very easy to preserve. It's a neutral writing utensil. So it's the best way to write down notes and things like that. I hate pencil. So I write everything in pen. And I know that it is not the anthropologic way to do it. But taking notes on the things that you see. So a notepad and pencil is something I carry. Um, More than like physical items, my favorite thing is waking up an hour before I have to be anywhere and finding a seat outside of some place. When I was in Hawaii, we had this big foyer area outside the library. And I would get up an hour early and I would get a coffee and I would sit there, not on my phone, not reading a book, not doing anything. Sometimes I'd listen to music, but just watching people. People watching is my favorite anthropology thing. Airports, oh my gosh, they're amazing. People watching in the airport and taking guesses at where you think people are going, what they're doing. The Seattle airport on my way home here, nothing but businessmen. That was my anthropologic conclusion. It was everybody traveling home. Everybody had suits. So many languages, especially if you don't have your headphones in, if you're not listening to music and you hear the way people are talking. I was sitting at a table outside one of the um, terminals and I heard three different languages while I was sitting there. None of them were English. Especially to on the airport thing. Uh, if you're flying like um, this past summer when I was coming back from Europe, right? The difference too in being able to people watch in the European airport and you see you, all the differences between them and us, but then you mm-hmm. come back to the states, and all of a sudden, like when flying back from Frankfurt right to Seattle, mm-hmm. s- that is such such a difference. There is definitely some culture shock. Like you get back to the states, and everything is so so different, and it, it starts to Loud. seem strange too. After, well, not only that, but also in like differing attitudes towards everything. I mm-hmm. think the most prominent being airport security, right? European mm-hmm. attitudes towards airport security differ very visibly from yep. those in the States. And so if you if you just sit there and you pay attention, mm-hmm. you know, coming 
yeah. I've only ever been yelled at by airport security in the United States. I took my shoes off at fr- in France. Oh my gosh, this was the nicest guy ever. He hands me my shoes and my jacket and he goes, no, madame, welcome to France. It was so exciting. It was like four o'clock in the morning. I was tired as all get out. It was the best thing that could have happened. Yeah, they didn't. I didn't. I never had to take off my belt, like going through anything mm-hmm. there. And um, too, like you don't have to strip down no. naked and like. Well, and then like I, the um, border guards to get into Germany mm-hmm. far nicer than the Americans when I was coming back. Like I'm an American citizen, and I was like, Pff, "Why yeah. are you here, Jack?" But like, yeah, you go to Germany, and they're just like, "Oh, what do you want to do in Germany?" And it's like, "Oh, I'm going to study German." And it's like, "Okay, cool." Mm-hmm. But then you come back here and. It's, very different yeah. experience and you can yeah i had the same experience going into the uk and coming back uh, passport control a crazy time <laughs> passport that's something you need <laughs> to travel mm-hmm. I, I, one thing i was gonna bring up was a task cam or like a recorder Other oh than, yeah you know i know we live in this digital age and you mm-hmm. know you being able to hit record yeah you know with you know, with the consent of the individual, of course, mm-hmm. um, you know, and being able to, to save that. The other thing I think for an anthropologist uh, is um, seriously, uh, I, I, maybe maybe this is what this mm-hmm. is to solve your problem with the pen yeah. issue, like a notebook that like the waterproof notebooks, you know, yeah. you know those scientific ones. Yes. And those are, we those are scientists, good ones too. you know. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Archaeologists, they use those all the time. But the pen still runs. Yeah. So that's the only problem with that. Uh, I love, I like using my phone to record. I like my Tascam. My Tascam little audio recorder is a little bit quiet when I actually listen to it. So I have a hard time with that one. Um, but an, a really interesting thing that I've, I've learned while I was in Washington is this concept called photo voice. And so you as the anthropologist or the people that are helping you conduct your research, you hand out um, either little digital cameras or disposable cameras and you ask them. So let's say you're working with someone like I'm working with Dylan. I would ask Dylan, what are some instances of environmental issues in your community that you think are important? Take pictures of it and then we'll develop the pictures and you tell me why that picture is important. So then you come back and I give a camera to Kevin and Kevin goes and he takes a bunch of pictures and then I can look at those pictures and see in a physical visual representation what you think is important. So pictures and voice recordings and videos. Videos can tell you so much, so much. Just videos of places. I know when we were, we conducted research at the um, Student Recreation Center, we were looking at um watching video footage to see how people were using the space and what was going on in there because there's so much information held in those, just those little moments that you can capture on film. Yeah. I think, yeah, for me, especially like um, that would be a recommendation of mine is like, if you, if you're in a place where you can and if people are willing to be filmed, Mm -hmm. then for sure, because it, it just, yeah, you know, it, human memory is very fallible and that's why we anthropologists mm-hmm. do things such as take prodigious notes and i think that a camera is a very very good complement to that both when it's um directed by the anthropologist but also like with what you were discussing where you mm-hmm. let um the folks that you're working with in the field also uh 
take those images and you know they show you with those images what they're what they are um find important or what they are valuing as well yeah i love that one because like you then conduct an interview on top of it Mm -hmm. so you have their you're talking to them and you can ask them about it and so when they're describing something to you you're like tell me about some environmental issue and you could they could talk about it and describe it to you all they want but you're not going to see it the way they see it and that picture can show you exactly how they see it do they i mean and that changes too like if you send your cameras out with someone who's five foot two and you send your cameras out with someone who's six foot four you're gonna get very different pictures the Mm. same thing Mm -hmm. and that has something that perspective has something to do with how we view the world absolutely now i I think uh so this is a this is a question that we ask all of our guests Mm -hmm. and you know we've talked about it already briefly and Mm -hmm. i um in the previous segment but um the perspe- what is your perspective and what is your definition of anthropology, Delaney? Do, I know you talked about biocultural earlier, mm-hmm. but anthropology. What is the go-all, be-all? Yeah. Anthropology is everything. Anthropology is everything. Anthropology is everything because we are everything and we have had such an impact on the world around us that there is no way to separate the world we experience from culture and from anthropology as a whole. Anthropology as a whole, anthropology is everything. Mm-hmm. I think, I, yeah, yeah, I mean. <laughs> it's very broad. It's everywhere. It's all around us. Um, and, uh, you know, speaking of, it mm-hmm. does, you know, make our lives better some way, somehow. Mm-hmm. And make us feel good. Delaney, any final words? Thank you for having me. Well, we want to thank you for coming on our show today and uh, talking to us a little bit about anthropology. We, you know, we sometimes, I, I remember I mentioned this once, we say this show is not possible without Delaney because <laughs> this team was formed from that research methods course with Dr. Elaine Drew. So we want to thank you for tuning in. Um, this is our last show of this semester. We promised this time. We know we said that last week, but like uh, Kevin leaves tomorrow. So yeah. We're so done. you know we're we're um, the show will continue on into mm-hmm. next semester. Uh, we'll have some slight changes to the hosts, but we'll still be around. Yeah. We'll so see. check us out online at speakingofanthro.wixsite.com uh, backslash speakingofanthro. Uh, also check out Anthropology Society's Facebook page if you're interested, uh, and we'll we'll post some announcements and uh, check it out if you're interested. Uh, you know, also keep on tuning in to KSUA 91.5 FM Fairbanks in the new year uh, once the school starts uh, and everything will kick on up. Well, we want to wish you the best of luck, Delaney, in Western Washington with your grad school. Thank you. And, uh, you know, we dearly miss you here at UAF. Um, but, you know, we thought you're back and yes. here you are. So thanks so much. Thank, Thank you, you for coming on.